Welcome, welcome. Thank you. Honey, do we have any uh, housekeeping details? Okay. Next time we miss a class is the Sunday, is it before, Sunday before Memorial Day? The weekend of Memorial Day, so this, okay, so don't come that Sunday. Other than that, what are we doing tonight? Oh, yeah, Hebrews. Mm. Oh, oh, the Hebrews in the Old Testament. Shoot. I did the Hebrews in the New Testament. Oh, well, we'll get there. Okay, let me uh, put my pause in here. And let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Uh, we live because you are faithful to us. Thank you. Uh, thank you for all the things you've done for us in and through the Lord Jesus. And I pray that your spirit would tonight take uh, what is written about you from your word and communicate it to our brains and our hearts and our souls uh, this evening. We thank you for uh, your promise to do that, and we look forward to it and sharing it uh, on our ways on our way home with uh, with other people. We thank you and pray for this, please, in Jesus' name, Amen. Okay, let's do a little bit of review. Out of Egypt, remember we've come out of Egypt. The children of Israel who came out by grace, through faith, under blood. They passed through the Red Sea. They entered the wilderness. They went to Mount Sinai. God told them, uh, I have something for you, promised land, which he had actually told them about back here in Genesis. He said, I have a promised land for you. Let's go. And in your good Sunday school fashion... Two said go, ten said no. <laughs> so they didn't go. And the first generation wound up wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. The second generation, when we finish Deuteronomy, the second generation is standing right here across from Jericho, across from the Jordan River, from Jericho, and Moses is... Uh, He's probably compiled Genesis through Deuteronomy, and he's turning it over to Joshua, but he's reiterating the covenant and saying, don't make the mistakes of the first generation of your fathers and mothers. Don't do that. Be men and women of faith. Don't be faithless. And so they're standing right there. The author to the book of Hebrews is going to use that picture in the book of Hebrews. And hopefully if you read all 13 chapters, you saw bits and pieces of that. If you miss that, the connection back to what we just covered in Numbers and Deuteronomy, you will wind up with all kinds of squirrely interpretations of Hebrews. And you'll be frightened instead of encouraged. 
And the author wrote it to encourage you, not to frighten you. But if you don't know your Old Testament, you can wind up thinking that there are things the author is saying in the book of Hebrews that he's not saying. So, that's why we put a big pause right now after Numbers and Deuteronomy. We jump over to Hebrews. We build off of the, um, the wilderness wandering for the book of Hebrews because that is, in a sense, what this author is warning his I don't know if it's his congregation, but he's warning these people about don't be faithless, don't wander the wilderness, press into your inheritance. Because if you don't, if you try to back up from this thing and stay in the wilderness, it's not going to go well for you. So he really is, there is a lot of encouragement in the book of Hebrews, but there's also a warning. And the warning comes off of the same warning that we got in the book of, particularly in Numbers. Now, we have talked about this before, but it bears repetition. One more time. The people who came out with Moses, God told them how to come out. So who originated this idea? God. So it's by grace. They had to exhibit faith in God's Word to do what He said, and He said, come out under blood, by grace, through faith, under blood. The people who came out were going to shorten this up and say that these were what you and I would call saved people. Who died in the wilderness? Saved people. These were not people who didn't know God or Moses, and they are the ones who died in the wilderness. It's important to remember that these were God's people who, because of prolonged faithlessness and disobedience, wound up losing the inheritance, losing the great life that God had picked out for them. So there is a real warning in the book of Hebrews, but there's also great encouragement. And so we're going to cover that all in one hour. Yes, we will. So here we go. The book of Hebrews, I've put two words on it, patient endurance. What the author to, the book, to, the author to Hebrews is writing to the people is that they would be patient and endure whatever the suffering was they were going through. There's been many speculations as to what it was. I'll suggest one, but there are many different suggestions. But patient endurance is the message of the book of Hebrews. Who wrote it? We don't know. Many people think Paul. Others think Apollos. Um, there's good reasons for either one of those two. If you want to pick Paul, you can pick Paul. You won't be in bad company. Uh, not the song, not the group. Uh, you won't be in bad company. Okay. Could be Paul. Could be Apollos. Could be somebody completely different. Uh, I don't know. People say, well, where do you lean? I say, it doesn't say, and so I lean toward I don't know. 
way to ride the fence, Bill. When? We don't know. (laughs) But it's before 60 to 65. It's definitely before A.D. 70 because there's no mention of the temple being destroyed. The temple has not yet been destroyed. That happened in A.D. 70, so it had to come before that. Where? We don't know. (laughs) It's most likely written in Jerusalem. Why? Key. Understand this book is written to Christians. Uh, For instance, chapter 1, verse 3, the second part of it. When he had cleansed us from our sins, he sat down in the place. Who's the we? Who are the we who have had their sins cleansed? Christians. Okay? Uh, Let's see. 2-1. So we must listen very carefully to the truth we have heard, or we may drift from it. 3-1. And so, dear brothers and sisters who belong to God and are partners with those called to heaven... Sounds kind of like a Christian to me. So this is a book written to Christians. Okay? All these, you go, yeah, yeah, who doesn't know this? Because you'll wind up in the ditch if you don't get some of these basic things on your belt. This is a book written to Christians. It's not written to people who think they're Christians and who aren't or pretenders. This is a book written to Christians. They're at a Kadesh Barnea. Remember Kadesh Barnea? Two said go, ten said no. The two couldn't talk the others into it. What is this author trying to do? Talk them (laughs) into following God and being faithful. He wants them to not regress or retreat further, he instead wants to promote patient and faithful endurance in these Christians. Now, what might be going on? This was likely one of the first severe periods of persecution for Christians. The Roman Empire had kind of said, if you're a Jew... We still don't like you, but okay. These Christians, we don't like them at all because they have another king and another god. It seems possible, I would even say probable, that these Christians were backing up into Judaism in order to try to um, minimize the amount of persecution they were going to be under. So if I'm a Christian, but I'm a 007 Christian, and nobody really knows, and I kind of can play like a Jew, then maybe things will go well for me. And the author says, don't do it. This is the way forward. Patiently endure what's coming. God is with you. Very, very difficult 
message. That's why he's encouraging them with a little bit of warning sprinkled in here. So if they're backing up from what they see coming, and if you will, they're kind of trying to be Christians incognito or in secret, the author is saying, come on, come on. Let me show you how much better what you have is than what the Jews had back in the book of Numbers. And so he spends the whole book of Hebrews telling them how much better they have it than their way back ancestors. Okay? That's some of the preliminaries for Hebrews. These folks are in trouble. They want to minimize the persecution if they can't escape it. And they've come up with a scheme. And the writer says, that's not what we're going to do. And so he begins showing them how much better, spiritually speaking, they have it than their way back ancestors. So what's the Lord's counsel to those who are in a time of forced patience? Press in and press on. Don't run and hide. In, in our language, uh, don't look so like the world that nobody knows you're a Christian anymore. Don't try to go incognito. Press in. Press on. This is what we're called to do. So the Lord is telling these people, what I need you to have is patient endurance. Notice that forced is in quotes. Forced patience. If God's in control, is it ever forced? No. Love, joy, peace. You know, it's even funny. Why do I even make fun of patience? If it's a fruit of the Spirit, isn't it a good thing? Isn't it something to be desired, not something to be feared? I don't know very many Christians who love talking about patience. I know a lot of Christians who do this. <laughs> I had to be patient. <laughs> Love, joy, peace, patience. Patience is a good thing. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a fruit of the Spirit. So what does the Lord want us to do when we have to be patient? He wants us to press in and press on. Very simple outline of the book of Hebrews. Christ is a superior person. That's chapters 1 through 6. Christ has a superior priesthood. That's chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10. A Christian's superior life principle is 11, 12, and 13. Just three divisions in this book. You might have seen some of these as you were reading through it. So let's just take a look at it. First, Christ is a superior person. And my goodness, he's got um, this introduction is fabulous. Long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And now in these final days, he has spoken to us through his son. God promised everything to the son as an inheritance. And through the son, he created the universe. 
The sun radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. And he sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. Have you ever thought about that? If Jesus for a moment thought, you know, squirrel, squirrel, (laughs) the universe would go, boop, it would stop. It would stop. He keeps it going. That's why I prayed in the beginning, why do you and I live? Because God is faithful to us. No other reason. Because God is faithful. So we live. When he had cleansed us from our sins, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. This shows that the Son is far greater than the angels, just as the name God gave him is greater than their names. And so the author begins to walk through all the ways that Christ is better than the prophets. He's brought superior revelation, right? God has given His Son, end of verse 2, well, halfway through verse 2, and now in these final days He's spoken to us through His Son. Who's gotten the last word? The Son. God gave the Son the last words. He holds a superior position. He's not an angel. He's superior to the angels. He is the creator, the controller, and the sustainer of all things. He is God's heir of all things. He is God's sacrifice and redeemer. He is God's king priest. He has a superior message. God's last word. Christ is better than the prophets, even though God has spoken to us through the prophets, Jesus has better words for us in these last days. He's superior than, to the angels. He's better than the angels. He has a greater inheritance and name. He was and will be worshipped by angels He is not a created servant, but the eternal sovereign Lord. He is now seated as God's king priest. He is the son, not a servant. What do angels do? They're sent to help those who would inherit salvation. Who are angels sent to help? You and me. How, when, what? I don't know. I don't know. But that's what it says. It's funny, last week we were talking about this thing with angels. We don't know very much. In fact, we know very little. So we have God, triune God, Father, Son, Spirit, okay? He creates an order of beings, angels. Uh, By the way, angels are superior to us in every way conceivable. Then there are people. He made him a little lower, right? God made Jesus a little lower than the angels for a time. At his ascension, he returns to his rightful place. When he comes to collect us, guess where we go? Over the angels. 
Which is why it says in 1 Corinthians 6, don't you know we will judge angels? I didn't make that up. You can go read it. What does that mean? I don't know. We are going to judge angels. We will be in a superior position, if you will, in the hierarchy because of Jesus. Not because of what we did or just because we're particularly lovely. He places us over the angels. Okay, I don't know. Don't ask me any questions because I don't know any answers. But that's what he has done and he is doing through Jesus. We have, I has not seen nor ear heard what God has prepared for those who love him. We do not know what this thing looks like. I've talked to a lot of people and they say, I can't wait till I get to heaven and then I get to know, you know, X, Y, or Z. And I said, well, like somebody said to me, they said, I'll, I'll be so happy because then I'll understand election and free will. And I said, what makes you think you get to know that? Well, because then I'll know all things. I said, at what point do you become God? At no point. You are still a creature with finite understanding. And what if the, our created minds cannot comprehend some of these things that you wish you knew the answer to? What if you don't care? Do, do you understand what you're like? That sounds harsh, Bill. <laughs> of course I'll care. I don't know. The seraphim in Isaiah 6 fly around the heavenly throne. And there's no time there. But 24-7, they cry out, holy, holy, holy. They never seem to get tired of this, and they never seem to get bored with this. We just don't know what this all looks like. But there's fabulous things because you know we're going to know somebody there. And his name is Jesus. <laughs> and we're going there and we're going to be with him. And he is not a servant. He is the son. And the son is going to welcome us there. Christ is better than the prophets. He's better than the angels. He's a superior messenger. That's kind of the point of the first, uh, the, of 4 through 14. He's a superior messenger. And so, the author gives us the first of five warnings. So, we must listen very carefully to the truth we have heard, or we may drift away from it. What does he not want me to do? Drift away from God's Word. Don't drift away from God's Word. You think that you can go as an incognito Christian, don't do it. Trust God and go. Yes, it looks like there's giants there. Yes, it looks like you're a grasshopper to them and they're going to eat you. Yes, yes, yes. But come on, here we go. God has spoken. Take heed how you respond. The rest of chapter 2, he has become the perfect leader. 
He's defeated the devil, and he has become a merciful high priest. He's better than Moses. And so he starts off chapter 3, and he, he's up on Moses. I mean, he's, yay, Moses. <laughs> but the son is superior to his servant, Moses. And he uses the analogy of a house. He says, hey, Moses is a great guy, but who's better? <laughs> Jesus is better than Moses. And so he gets into another warning. And he says, don't doubt God's word. Don't doubt it. He's better than the prophets. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. You're trying to back up into Moses. He goes, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't doubt what God says. And don't back up into Moses because that's not really going to help you. Chapter 4, God's promise of entering his rest still stands, so we ought to tremble with fear that some of you might fail to experience it. Uh Uh-oh, you start going, whoa, gee. This is where the Christian loses his salvation. No. What is rest? If you want, go back to Deuteronomy 3, go back to Deuteronomy 12. We learned back then, although I didn't highlight it, that rest and inheritance are virtually interchangeable, which is why I've been telling you there's an inheritance for you. It's your rest. You go, what? Stop. If I were, uh, if, if I'm Caleb and Joshua, I go get my land, right, later on. What do I have to do? I have to battle for it. I have to fight enemies. Rest cannot, go get your rest, go get your inheritance. It cannot mean heaven. By analogy, there's no fighting left to do. Jesus has done all the fighting. So rest equals salvation, not in this sense. Rest means something to do with my inheritance. The people in the desert, in our parlance, they were like, us. They were saved people. What did they lose when they died in the desert? They lost their inheritance. They did not lose their salvation or their standing with God. Still, they lost. But that's what the author is trying to communicate here. There is rest for you to have, inheritance for you to have. Don't miss out on it. And if you back up from it, you're not going to get it. All right, so he says, don't doubt God's word. Don't be like Israel's first generation and miss out. Who can lead me into God's promised rest? Yeshua. Jesus can lead me into that place, into that rest. Um, Have you ever completed a task or an assignment? I mean, like maybe... I don't know, you you mowed the lawn, right? You mowed the lawn. Well done. You completed a task or an assignment. How did you feel when that was finished? You felt good. 
You felt good because you had, in a sense, entered rest because you'd completed an assignment. That's the sense of rest here. Complete your assignment. Get your inheritance. Jesus can lead you there. In fact, he is a superior leader for God's people. He's better than the prophets. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. And as a priest, even a high priest, he's better than Aaron. He has a superior appointment. And that was the point of chapter, the first part of chapter 5. No one decides to take on the role of high priest for themselves. They have to be um, nominated, so to speak. They have to be selected. How was Jesus selected? God under gave an oath that you are my son, and today this is what's going to happen. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. That's what God told him. God picked Jesus to be the better Aaron. So he has a superior appointment straight from God. That causes him to go over here, and he does another warning. He says, don't become dull to God's Word. Chapter 5, verse 11. Uh, Let's see. He's just said, and God designated him to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. You're like, oh, I remember Melchizedek. He's that guy who showed up in Genesis. Well, verse 11. There is much more we'd like to say about this, but it is difficult to explain, especially since you are spiritually dull and don't seem to listen. <laughs> oh, thank you, mystery author. <laughs> you have been believers so long now that you ought to be teaching others. Instead, you need someone to teach you again the basic things about God's Word. You're like babies who need milk and cannot eat solid food. For someone who lives on milk is still an infant and doesn't know how to do what is right. Solid food is for those who are mature, who through training have the skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong. (coughs) Thank you, sir. I have another. (laughs) Wow. He expects them to be further along than they are. And some of the reason he knows they're not as far along is because they're backing up from all of this teaching that they've already received. Know the Word. Believe it. Apply it and grow. So fun. Solid food is for those who are mature who through training... Greek word is hymnadzo. Hymnadzo. It should sound like gymnasium because that's what it is. What is he saying? You should be in the moral gymnasium and you should be working out what right and wrong looks like. And in doing that, you will become increasingly mature as you take the scriptures and you learn to apply it into your situation into the moral gymnasium. 
Christ is better than Aaron. He is a superior priest. He's better than the prophets. He has a superior message. He's better than the angels. He's a superior messenger. He's better than Moses. He's a superior leader to Moses. And he's better than Aaron. He's a superior high priest. My goodness. Oh, there's so much in here. But we're going to do it in an hour. Look at the end of the end of 4, end of chapter 4. So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. Okay, there's his exhortation to them. Hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive His mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. Mm. He is superior to the prophets, to the angels, to Moses, to Aaron. And now the author builds off of this, and he says, all right, let's talk about him being a superior, not as a superior priest, but as a superior priesthood. He's part of a better order. So he starts off with chapter 7. Melchizedek is superior to Levi. <laughs> Why is that? Because Levi, in the loins of Abraham, paid tithes to Melchizedek way, way, way back in Genesis, what was that, 14, 15, somewhere around there. So Levi has already paid tithes to Melchizedek. Well, what is that all about? <laughs> Melchizedek is this character who just kind of he appears on the, on the scene. We don't really know too much about him. He could be a real person. He also could be a Christophany. It could be a pre-incarnate. Uh, the angel of the Lord could be... Um, the, um, it's a pre-incarnate version of the Lord Jesus. Uh, he seems to have been a real person who is the king of peace and the king of, and the king of righteousness. Hmm. And Abraham gave him tithes. Abraham recognized his superiority and as an offering, so now as an offering to a priest, Abraham makes a sacrifice. Of, of, uh, well, of money, of things, material possessions. Hmm. Well, that's crazy. Well, what do we learn about Melchizedek? Well, Melchizedek just appeared on the scene. We don't know about his beginning or about his end, and so the author takes that to mean the eternality of his life. His life never began and it never ended which could be true if it is a pre-incarnate picture of the Lord Jesus. He says the Melchizedekian order, this will be on the final, by the way, the difference between Aaron and Melchizedek. Aaron is from what tribe? Levi. What tribe is the Lord Jesus from? Judah. 
big problem. The Lord Jesus cannot be a priest in the Levitical order. He's from the wrong tribe. But in the tribe of Melchizedek, he can be the king priest, which he is. It's like God might have thought about this ahead of time. I don't know. And he shows us a picture of Melchizedek, and then the author comes, author to Hebrews comes back and says, yeah, actually, that's a thing. And in the Psalms, it talks about the order of Melchizedek, and God the Father with an oath makes the Lord Jesus, uh, appoints him a priest in the order of Melchizedek. So those people running around saying Jesus can't be a priest, yeah, you're right. He can't be a priest from the Levitical side, but he can be from the Melchizedekian side. And the Melchizedekian side of the priesthood is way better. It's superior to the Levitical order. It's superior because of Jesus' indestructible life. It's superior because of God's oath. It's superior because of Jesus' purity and holiness. And His ministry is unrivaled in effectiveness. One of the reasons we all continue to live is because of God's faithfulness. Do you know the other reason that Christians continue to live and thrive? Hebrews 7.25. You know what it says? It's a great verse to memorize if you're looking for verses to memorize. Start in 24. But because Jesus lives forever, His priesthood lasts forever. Therefore, He is able once and forever... Can you imagine that if he didn't have an eternal life? Let's say he, right, I, I don't know what it would mean, but he dies somehow and, and number two shows up and goes, yeah, Bill, yeah, sorry, I guess he forgot to write your name down. I don't think he told me about you. Sorry, <laughs> bummer, <laughs> mistakes happen. <laughs> it's our database. <laughs> we lost it. We had to rebuild it. <laughs> right? Jesus never, his life never ends. He never forgets. He never hands it over to somebody else. He is always seen to your salvation and mine personally. And no one, he trusts it to no one else. 25. Therefore, he is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. You wonder why you, something good will happen to you tomorrow. Jesus has prayed for you, and He might even have prayed tonight for you tomorrow. Remember with Peter? This is before the garden. And Jesus tells Peter, Peter, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. Go and minister to your brothers. The Lord knows what's coming, and He prays for us that we will be equipped for it in that time. So what do I need to do? Patiently endure. Because I have the greatest high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the Almighty God praying without ceasing for me. You ever thought about that? Maybe we can't even do a bad prayer. You ever thought about that? Because the Spirit intercedes for me, 
And so when I take a crummy prayer, and then the Spirit of God takes it and shapes it and gives it to Jesus, and Jesus prays that perfect prayer to his Father, <laughs> I, I don't really get to hear what he prayed for me for. I'm like, yes, I can't pray a crummy prayer. That's a big relief for me. All right. Man, it's taken a lot to get you guys going tonight. His ministry is unrivaled in its effectiveness. He's a part of a better order. He has a better covenant. What's the covenant that he has? We haven't gotten to it yet. It's in Jeremiah 31. But what's the covenant he has? The new covenant. What did Aaron you can, if you're a priest, you can only bless your people out of the covenant that's in force at that time. If I'm Aaron, what covenant do I have to bless out of? The old covenant, the Mosaic covenant. It's a good covenant. <laughs> Problem was nobody could keep it. <laughs> so God says, I'm going to create a new covenant, and my new priest in the order of Melchizedek will have the new covenant available to use to bless his people. And what does he bless us with? A new mind, a new heart, the forgiveness of sins, and the indwelling Holy Spirit. This is in Jeremiah 31. Yes, I realize that's in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God tells us what the new covenant is and what its blessings are. The Lord Jesus then is able out of the new covenant, which He Himself has been the Lamb and the blood and the sacrifice for, He says, I am more than willing to bless everyone who, as Jonathan said this morning, changes their mind about me and puts their faith in me. And I will bless them with a new mind and a new heart and the forgiveness of sins and the indwelling Holy Spirit better than anything they got in the Old Testament. Gosh, don't, I mean, you love God. Don't you love this? Oh, it's amazing. It's like somebody knew what they were doing when they put it all together. I don't know, crazy. It's new and better with better promises. It's not old, faulty, or out of date. If you'll go back and read the New Covenant tonight, Jeremiah 31, God says it's back to the Abrahamic covenant language when God said, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. The New Covenant is one way. Remember the Mosaic Covenant, if you'll do this, then I'll do this. The New Covenant, God says, I will, I will, I will. It doesn't depend on us. You say, Lord, I don't know why I haven't been blessed recently. Stop. He gave you a new mind to be able to understand His Word, a new heart with a soft conscience to Him where before you had just been a rebel and had walked in rejection to God and everything about Him as did I, but He gave you a new heart so you'd have a new sensitivity to Him. He gave you the forgiveness of sins. If that's not the biggest blessing, I don't know what is. 
And he gave you the indwelling Holy Spirit, who he says will never leave us or forsake us, who will be with us forever. Four blessings guaranteed you have those right now. If you say, I have no other blessings in my life, you have these. A new mind, a new heart, the forgiveness of sins, and the indwelling Holy Spirit. If that can't get you (laughs) up in the morning, I don't know what can. Those are amazing, amazing blessings. Inner transformation, spiritual blessing, removal of sins. Oh, I'm going to get a horse. He's part of a better order. He's part of a better covenant. He ministers in a better sanctuary. Why do you think Moses had to go up on top of the mountain to get the plans for the tabernacle? Because he went to meet with God, and God said, here it is. And he shows him the tabernacle in the heavens, and he says, make it just like this. But it's a copy. It's a copy built on the earth. Where does Jesus go to do his ministry? In heaven. You say, I'm not sure I believe you. Great. Wait till we get till Daniel and we do Revelation, and you'll see it. You will see it. You'll see all the pieces of the furniture up there in Revelation. Don't go read it yet. Jesus ministers in a better sanctuary. Why is it better? Because it's not made with human hands. It is the actual sanctuary, not just a copy of it. He's part of a better order. He has a better covenant. He ministers in a better sanctuary. Such amazing stuff. Uh, Where am I? Chapter 9. Oh, yeah. Okay. Chapter 10. He has offered better blood, better order, better covenant, better sanctuary, better blood. His blood is superior. Why? Uh, Because he's Jesus. His blood's effectiveness is superior. Um, I may have said this before already, but I'll say it again. Um, John 1.29, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Before I came to seminary, there was an elderly pastor at the church we were a part of. He had gone to an emeritus status, and there was someone else there, and I'm ready to head off to seminary, and we knew each other just a little bit, and he came up to me, and I said, um, his name was Gene, and I said, Gene, I'm headed off to Dallas Seminary, and he said, oh, I so loved my time there. He was a graduate uh, of Dallas Seminary. And uh, he said, never forget two things. I'm like, oh, okay. He says, never forget your Greek. (laughs) Sorry, Gene. (laughs) (laughs) Never forget your Greek. And never forget one other thing. And he says, I'll ask you this by a question. Bill, where are your sins? And if I would have had suspenders, you know, I would have... (laughs) would have done this. <laughs> well, sir, my sins are covered by the blood of Jesus. I'm, I'm waiting for the, you know, a gasp to come from this elderly saint. And he says, he just puts his head down like this. 
And he says, Bill, I'm so sorry. He said, then your sins remain upon you. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You don't want your sins on you. Let Jesus take them away. In chapter 10, that's what he's doing. He's taking them away. They are no longer on me or a part of me. They are gone. And Psalm 103 tells me he has separated me from my sins as far as the east is from the west, meaning these two will never, ever get back together. That's how far the Lord has separated me from my sins. New mind, a new heart, the forgiveness of sins and the indwelling Holy Spirit. Unbelievable blessings. So then he gets to chapter 10, and he's got another warning for us. He's been going pretty good here. He's got to give us a warning. And so he gives us this, what looks like the most horrible warning of all, because what we're going to do is um, we're going to burn a field. He says in verse 26, if we deliberately continue sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, uh, there's no hope. He's got a hypothetical because what he's doing is he's backing up and saying, okay, if you want to go back under the Mosaic system, okay, you've already experienced the better part because you're a Christian. Now you want to get rid of that. You want to back up under the Mosaic covenant. You've got no hope because you already had the answer and you've given up the answer and you've gone back to something that's inferior. There is no hope for anyone who does that. You go, well, what is that thing about the field? Please note what he burns. What is burned on the field? The produce, or lack of produce, right? The thistles. Is the field burned or destroyed? No, only the stuff on top. And you say, ooh, yeah, 1 Corinthians 3. Remember Paul says some will enter heaven as if escaping through flames? There's a consistent message here. We can so live our lives that everything we've done for the Lord will burn up like wood, hay, and stubble. We ourselves will be saved, but proverbially by the skin of our teeth. That's his warning. (laughs) It is a warning. But he's not saying there's no hope for you and you're going to lose your salvation if you keep sinning after you've become a believer. He is warning them against, basically, against apostasy and going back and saying, I forsake all of that stuff, the answer about Jesus, and I'm going to take what's inferior back. Well, then there's no hope for you. There's just no hope. You've already given up the answer for what is not the answer. You know it. Keep pressing in and pressing on and moving forward. Don't go backward. Persevere. Patiently endure. Do not discard God's Word. Jesus is part of a better order. He's in the order of Melchizedek. He has a better covenant. 
the new covenant. He ministers in a better sanctuary in heaven, not on earth. He has offered better blood. One, it's his own. Two, what animal ever voluntarily walked up to the altar and said, go ahead, cut my throat? Not one. But the Lord Jesus voluntarily laid his life down. He's offered better blood. Well, he's coming to the end of his book, and he wants to remind us to live in faith, not be faithless, but to walk in faith. And so he pulls up the roll call of the heroes of the faith. He First, he describes and defines faith in chapter 11. Faith is the confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. It gives us assurance about things we cannot see. Through their faith, the people in days of old earned a good reputation. There's the exhortation. He keeps telling him, don't forsake God's Word, and here's how you earn a good reputation. And so then he begins to describe faith before the patriarchs, then the faith of the patriarchs, then Moses' faith, then faith during the conquest, faith in trials and tough times. And he concludes with the victory of faith. All these people earned a good reputation. There it is. There's the bookend. Because of their faith, yet none of them received all that God had promised. For God had something better in mind for us so that they would not reach perfection without us, or they would not reach their destination before we will. We're going to all get there together. The superiority of living by faith, and he parades all of these people that we're familiar with in front of our eyes and says, here, here, men and women of faith, this is what they look like. This is what they did. Live like these people. That's what we need to do. Don't go backwards. Live like these people. So it gives us the heroes of living by faith. And then he tells us the patient endurance of faith, and that's chapter 12. He says, be encouraged by Jesus' example. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, a lot of people think this means like we're in a stadium and there's a whole, all these um, like Old Testament people are sitting in the stands um, cheering us on or going, oh, oh, he fell down, he tripped. Ooh, he sinned again. <laughs> That's not happening. That's not happening. If someone has told you that, I love them, but no, that's not what's happening. He's just saying, look at all the people who have come before you on the earth. Let their example be your example. He says, then let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with the endurance, uh, run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting Him, He endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor besides God's throne. Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. 
then you won't become weary and give up. After all, you have not yet given your lives or shed blood in your struggle against sin. So he gives us the par excellence example of the Lord Jesus himself. He says, be encouraged by Jesus' example. He says, be assured of God's love for you. Be assured of God's grace for you. And then he says, at the end of chapter 12, don't disobey God's Word. He's kind of got a theme. Maybe you've noticed this about God's Word. He says, be careful that you do not refuse to listen to the one who is speaking. Who spoke to us in these last days? Jesus. So don't neglect listening to Jesus. For if the people of Israel did not escape when they refused to listen to Moses, the earthly messenger, we will certainly not escape if we reject the one who speaks to us from heaven. And I think Laurie included a cool graphic there on the difference between Mount Sinai and um, Mount Zion. Yeah. Okay. So be assured of God's grace. Serve Him with reverence. The heroes of living by faith, the patient endurance of faith, the spiritual blessings of faith, and I've listed those for you right there. There's fellowship. There's a perspective that we have. There's leadership, not ours. Are you confident and content that God has you and is leading you and is doing the very best for your life as He sees it? That's a great confidence and leads to a great contentment because it allows you then to submit to the Lord and to His leading. The blessings of faith, sacrifices of living with joy, power living with Christ in us. The heroes of living by faith, the patient, uh, God is pleased with and rewards faith. The patient endurance of faith, God is working for good in the lives of the faithful. The spiritual blessings of faith, a faithful believer loses nothing of true value. And he goes through, or I'm going through the five exhortations. Don't drift from God's Word. Don't doubt God's Word, His character or His power. Don't become dull to God's Word. Don't discard God's Word. Don't disobey God's Word. Don't shrink back at your Kadesh Barnea. Whatever that is, don't shrink back. Don't pull back. Don't retreat Continue to press in. Continue to press on. Akadish Barnea. Maybe you're there tonight. Maybe it's one of money. Maybe ends don't meet. You're tempted to make offerings optional. Friendship. Your circle is abuzz with social issues of the day. Better to keep your head down and your mouth shut than courageously standing up for Jesus and a biblical worldview. That's what it may seem like is the best course. Dreams. This isn't the way life was supposed to work out. By now, I was supposed to have or to be, and so I'm tempted to take matters into my own hands rather than waiting on God. What are you to do if you're at one of those places? Look to Jesus, His person and His work. 
Listen to His voice through His Word. Talk to Him first and most and seek His help. Hold on to your confession, your testimony, your witness by faith as the heroes of old did. And remember, God is pleased with and rewards faith. So press in and press on. Chapter 13 uh, gives us this, this one tiny little uh, window when we talk about a continual sacrifice of praise. We've heard that in some songs before. You know, let's bring the sacrifice of praise. And it comes from right here. It comes from Hebrews 13. And so what I want us to do is in our time tonight, I think hopefully these are songs that everybody knows, and there's only one verse. And um, I don't know, Andrew, are you still here? Okay, turn on. Thank you. If you will, uh, turn off my mic. Next time, read Joshua 1 through 5. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for allowing us to give you a sacrifice of praise. You deserve all praise, all honor, all glory, everything. Thank you. We worship you and celebrate you, our great Redeemer, our great King, our great High Priest. Thank you. We worship you and you alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Joshua 1 through 5.